You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, episode 58, Slavery and Liberty. In 1773 and 1774, the people of Massachusetts submitted numerous petitions in defense of their rights and natural liberties. Now, among these petitions were several submitted by slaves asking for an end to slavery. The governor and legislature rejected these petitions out of hand if they considered them at all. So by themselves, they have little significance, but they are part of a larger effort by slaves to demand reconsideration of their status in society. And the petitions gave me the opportunity to talk about the status of slaves and how the revolution began to change things. Now, I haven't really discussed slavery much at all so far, and was rather reluctant to address it in this episode as well. Now, today, of course, there's near universal agreement that slavery was a bad thing, but coverage of the topic is still controversial in that failure to condemn the process with sufficient vehemence is taken by some as somehow supporting that system. I really have tried to keep my personal opinions out of this podcast, but in this case, for the record, I will say at the outset that slavery, especially as practiced in the Americas, was particularly unjust, wrong, and immoral in my opinion. The other reason I was reluctant to address it is there are some really good specialized studies of American slavery that really is a whole category apart from the revolution itself. My brief discussion today barely scratches the surface of this interesting topic. Now that said, there were a few slavery issues in the early 1770s that deserve attention, and therefore I'm using this episode as a brief overview of slavery as it existed at the beginning of the war. Just as there is a consensus today that slavery is wrong, as the colonies developed, there seemed to be a consensus that there was nothing wrong with slavery. Before the Revolution, we find rather little debate over the notion of emancipation just about anywhere. Slavery existed as a common practice throughout most of the world. Few even seemed to question this practice. Now, the British made use of slaves throughout their empire as did the French, Spanish, and Dutch. Although there was not an active slave trade in England itself, many British subjects brought slaves into England from various colonies and were able to hold them in bondage. There was no explicit statute authorizing slavery in England, but there did not seem to be any effort to prevent the practice either. In North America, there are a few examples of Europeans enslaving other Europeans, These happened relatively early in the colonization period, and they were pretty rare and ended rather quickly. There were also attempts to enslave Indians, which also failed, mostly because Indians who were kept locally could run away too easily, and shipping them to other parts of the world 
often resulted in them dying off quickly, usually before they could be sold. So, enslavement of Africans became the norm. There are also many examples of Indian tribes enslaving both white and black captives. In most cases, slaves eventually either left or became part of the tribe. They typically did not remain slaves for their entire lives, and nor did their children become slaves. Now, most slaves who came from Africa to America ended up in the Caribbean islands or South America. Only a very small percentage, less than half a million, ever came to the British colonies of North America over the entire history of the American slave trade. And only a small percentage of that small percentage went to New England. Even in New England, though, slavery was not particularly controversial anywhere. It was the norm. Now today, as I said, we think of slavery as a terrible infringement of liberty, and rightly so. But the notion that people were born with fundamental rights, including liberty, was not a common conception during the pre-Enlightenment era. Most people were born to live the life of their parents. If your father was a tenant farmer living on rented land, that was what you would do as well. If not required by law, a poor freeman's options for life were pretty limited. Most people had no education and lived on subsistence wages that gave them few opportunities to change their station in life. Now, many of the terrible conditions that we associate with slavery, inadequate food, clothing, and shelter, the threat of physical abuse if one did not satisfy the demands of one's master, the inability to change jobs, were all things that many supposedly free commoners also experienced. As a practical matter in daily living standards, an unskilled commoner's life was not that far removed from actual slavery. Now, the spread of Enlightenment ideas in the 1700s made the slavery question more complicated. Enlightenment thinkers held that all men were born free, with certain natural rights, liberty among them. Even poor working people had at least a limited choice in what work they did and for whom they worked, even if exercising those choices could be risky for them. Slavery did not even offer those basic options. How then could one justify one subset of men born into servitude without liberty and without having done anything to deserve their status? For most people, the answer seemed to be not to think about it too much. For those, however, that did start to think about the basic rights of man and the notion that there were some basic universal rights, slavery stood in stark contrast to those notions. Enlightenment ideas almost necessarily brought one to the conclusion that slavery could not exist in a just society. Making that idea a reality, though, was not something that would come quickly or easily. Now, the first sizable group in North America that really questioned slavery was the Society of Friends, most of whom were in Pennsylvania. This group was also commonly known as the Quakers. Historians can point to religious debates among the Quakers going back to the 1600s. Even among the Quakers, though, it was not until the 1740s that they began as a group to end participation in the slave trade and free their own slaves. As late as 1738, a Quaker meeting in Pennsylvania disowned one of its members, Benjamin Lay, for protesting slave ownership among its members. And it was not until 1774 that Quakers categorically forbade their members from owning slaves or participating in the slave trade. 
Now, by that time, Quakers were the largest group leading the effort to end slavery. And for them, it really became a fundamental moral and religious issue that combined with their Enlightenment thinking. There were, of course, other non-Quakers who also joined the movement. Benjamin Rush, a Philadelphia native who had studied medicine in Edinburgh and Paris, returned home ready to challenge slavery. In 1773, he published An Address to the Inhabitants of the British Settlements in America Upon Slavekeeping. And I have a link to that address on my blog site if you want to read it, blog.amrevpodcast.com. Rush's work challenged the practice as incompatible with Enlightenment principles. And the following year, Rush founded the Pennsylvania Abolition Society in Philadelphia, with most of its early members being Quakers. On his return from London, Benjamin Franklin also joined this society, becoming an early outspoken advocate of abolition. Even so, both Rush and Franklin owned slaves for a part of their lives. So even people who questioned the practice felt the need to make use of slaves at times. It was that pervasive. Philadelphia, though, did become an early center of abolition, and it would eventually become the first state to pass a law explicitly abolishing slavery in 1780. Up in New England, Massachusetts would become a center of abolitionist sentiment in the early 1800s. But before and during the Revolution, it continued to support the practice with only minority opposition. When the colonists began asserting Enlightenment philosophy as a defense of their rights against Parliament, many began to think how those ideals squared with the practice of slavery. As early as 1764, James Otis, in his pamphlet in opposition to the Sugar Act, seemed to go out of his way to include blacks among those entitled to the rights of liberty. Quote, the colonists, black and white, born here, are free British subjects and entitled to all the essential civil rights of such. End quote. Otis, though, seems to have been in a very small minority who were willing to grant both black and white colonists the same rights. Despite these early and tentative first steps toward abolition, slavery remained a common practice throughout New England. At some level, whites had to maintain the threat of brutal punishment to keep slaves in line. In 1775, citizens of Charlestown, Massachusetts, regularly passed by the gibbeted remains of a slave named Mark. The slave had been hanged 20 years earlier for attempting to kill his master. His body remained on display for decades, serving as a warning to other slaves. Slavery in New England was pervasive even if the population percentage of slaves remained much lower than in the southern colonies. Many wealthy men on both sides of the political debate over colonial rights owned slaves, and among those was John Hancock. I also want to mention one largely forgotten event in New York in 1741, where colonists literally burned at the stake 17 slaves and hanged 17 others who were accused of participating in acts of arson around town. Again, colonists felt the need to use terror with the absolutely horrific act of burning men to death, even with little evidence that they were guilty of the crimes accused, as a way of keeping social order. Some level of terror was critical to maintaining the slave system. 
Now, as I said, by the 1770s, all slaves were of African descent. But not everyone of African descent was a slave. Some Africans actually arrived in America as free men. Most of these came as sailors on merchant vessels. Others were slaves that had purchased their freedom or were children of free blacks living in America. One of the problems for slave owners was motivating slaves to work. A punishment might get a minimum of effort, but a motivated worker will put in extra effort. And some owners promised slaves their eventual freedom if they met certain performance goals. There are several notable cases in New England regarding contract disputes between a slave and master over freedom. Courts did seem to allow slaves to bring such suits and often awarded freedom to the slave. Free blacks in New England tended to have the same rights as any other free man. They participated in the militia. In fact, some masters permitted their slaves to serve in the militia as well. One of the militiamen wounded at Lexington was a slave named Prince Easterbrook. But despite these tentative first steps, Massachusetts was not ready to end slavery altogether. In 1767, the colonial legislature considered bills to end slavery and the slave trade, but rejected both. In 1771, the legislature finally passed a bill banning importation of slaves into the colony, but Governor Hutchinson refused to sign the bill into law. Around the same time, we see tracts being circulated more often to end slavery or the slave trade. If a majority was not yet ready to make the change, the debate was beginning to happen. In 1773, a group calling itself the Sons of Africa petitioned Governor Hutchinson to end the slave trade. The governor received another petition in early 1774, just before leaving the colony. And he did not act on either of them. When Governor Gage arrived, he received another similar petition in the summer of 1774. He also ignored it. Colonial calls for liberty and notions that colonists were at risk of becoming slaves themselves was almost laughable to the men and women held in actual slavery by these same colonists. Caesar Sarter, a Massachusetts colonist who had purchased his own freedom from slavery years earlier, wrote in a call to free slaves in 1774, saying, quote, I need not point out the absurdity of your exertions for liberty when you have slaves in your houses. End quote. Another slave, Phyllis Wheatley, who had a very kind and encouraging master, wrote a book of poems while living as a slave in Boston. Her master allowed her to travel to Britain to obtain subscriptions to get her book published. While there, she met with Lord Dartmouth, Benjamin Franklin, and leading anti-slavery advocates to discuss the issue. The presence of a literate slave like Wheatley went a long way toward eliminating the racist notion that blacks were somehow inherently inferior and that they were therefore not worthy of the same basic rights that Enlightenment thinkers said belonged to all men. As I mentioned, some black men, both free and slaves, served in the various New England militia. Unlike southern colonists, New Englanders did not seem concerned about a slave uprising, probably because slaves remained a relatively small percentage of the population. When the New England militia came together to form the provincial army following Lexington and Concord, many of those bearing arms against the British were African American. Black and white troops were not segregated as happened in later generations. Black and white men served together side by side in the same units. Just after the Boston Tea Party, 
the town meeting of Medford, Massachusetts, issued resolves like many other towns. Medford's resolves, though, included several pointing out the hypocrisy of fighting for fundamental liberties while denying those same basic rights to others. While it would still take years to enact, the abolition movement followed closely behind the logic that sparked the revolution. Massachusetts would also end slavery in 1781, following a court case that held that the Constitution of 1780 had effectively outlawed slavery when it declared that all men had a right to liberty. Now in the South, where slave populations were much larger, the issue of slavery seemed harder to reform. Virginia had essentially banned slave trade in 1772 by placing a prohibitive tariff on the importation of new slaves. I've read some arguments, though, that this had more to do with economic and social issues than moral ones. Planter elites did not want smaller planters purchasing lots of cheap slave labor that would compete with their own plantations. Still, many colonial leaders in Virginia, Washington and Jefferson among them, began to talk about the implications of slavery in light of their views on liberty. Clearly, they were uncomfortable with the contradiction even if they were not ready to lose their fortunes through immediate abolition. In the South, where slaves often outnumbered freemen, there was always the fear of a slave revolt. A primary purpose of the militia was its capability of putting down such a revolt. Typically, free blacks could not participate in militia drills. And when patriots in Virginia began forming their own militias, they permitted freed blacks to participate, but not carry guns. They could serve as drummers or in other non-combat roles. When hostilities broke out, real Governor Lord Dunmore threatened to foment a slave uprising against the Patriots. He would follow through on that threat in the fall of 1775 when he issued a proclamation offering freedom to slaves who fled their masters to fight for the British. And I'm going to get into more detail on that in a future episode. But I just bring it up now because even in the spring of 1775, Dunmore made threats that made the Patriot planter class very nervous. Now, South Carolina had the largest percentage of slaves in its population, and ironically, the colony's support for slavery may have helped drive it into support for independence. In 1771, a Boston customs official named Charles Stewart went to London with his slave, James Somerset. Now, Somerset tried to use the trip as an opportunity to escape to freedom. Stuart recaptured his slave and decided to ship him off to Jamaica, where he would be sold. Several anti-slavery activists in London helped Somerset get his case before a friendly judge. The judge, Lord Mansfield, ruled that it was illegal in England for a man to sell a slave abroad as punishment for escaping service. Therefore, he granted Somerset his freedom. Now, based on the limited reasoning of this case, it would have been perfectly legal for Stuart to have recaptured his slave taken him back to Massachusetts, and then sold him there. So it really was of rather little benefit to most slaves seeking freedom. The case, however, gained notoriety on both sides of the Atlantic. Many slaves and masters in America mistakenly took it to mean that if they traveled to England with their slaves, they could be emancipated there. Slave owners in South Carolina, therefore, grew nervous that Parliament might simply decide to emancipate their slaves in the colonies as well many slave owners became more inclined to fight for the rights of colonial governments to control their own internal affairs. They wanted to see Parliament's authority limited 
and therefore sided with the Patriot faction. Word of the fighting in Lexington and Concord, and word from London that officials might be considering fomenting a slave uprising among the Patriots, raised existing fears to near panic among the white elite in South Carolina. David Margaret, a free black preacher based in Savannah, Georgia, had been preaching to slaves in the Charleston area for some time. Margaret had lived in England and had convinced an aristocrat to finance his ministry in America. Margaret liked to preach on Exodus, particularly the struggle of the Jews to escape slavery in Egypt. Local whites did not like this uncomfortable topic. Fears among a possible revolt led leaders to decide it would be best to hang him. Fortunately for Margaret, he got advance warning and was able to flee back to England. Other prominent blacks were not so fortunate. In the early 1800s, South Carolina, along with most other southern states, passed laws to prevent free blacks from living in the state. They feared a free black population might eventually form the leadership of a slave revolt. But in 1775, no such laws existed, and a very small number of free blacks lived in South Carolina. One of them was Thomas Jeremiah, a pilot in the Charleston Harbor who prospered and began to acquire a small fleet of ships. He even owned a few slaves of his own to help run his growing enterprise. None of this helped him, though, when two slaves accused him of encouraging them to rebel. There's almost no record of Jeremiah's trial or the evidence against him, but it appears to be extremely scant. Several prominent white men of Charleston, including Patriot leader Henry Lawrence and Royal Governor William Campbell, thought that he was unfairly railroaded. Under South Carolina law, even though Jeremiah was a free man with property, as soon as he was accused of a crime, his race required that he be tried in slave court. There, he was considered guilty until he could prove himself innocent. He had no right to an attorney, nor even to compel witnesses in his favor to appear. Unsurprisingly, the court found him guilty. No appeals were allowed, and he hanged. The governor considered offering clemency, but decided against it after his advisors warned that releasing Jeremiah would only result in his being lynched. So while New England and the Mid-Atlantic states were at the very beginnings of a movement to apply notions of liberty to black slaves, the Deep South's fear of a slave uprising caused them to move in the opposite direction, seeing blacks as a threat to their way of life rather than brothers in the cause of liberty. Obviously, this issue would grow over time. Next week, New England Patriots invade New York and capture Fort Ticonderoga. This episode is supported by the food delivery service, Factor. It's spring now, and we all want to spend more time outdoors enjoying life, not the kitchen. Factor ensures you have fresh, never-frozen, chef-crafted, dietitian approved meals that you can prepare in just two minutes. Each week, you get a menu of 35 meal options, as well as 60 add-ons, including breakfasts, on-the-go lunches, snacks, and beverages. You can customize your orders to get as much or as little as you want each week, and can pause or make changes to your orders at any time. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. It's the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, upscale options done easily. 
Now, they even have a special deal for fans of the American Revolution podcast. Head to factormeals.com slash ARP50 and use that code ARP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code ARP50 at factormeals.com slash ARP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Hey, and welcome back to another American Revolution podcast book review. If you've not already, I want to make another pitch for you to follow me on Twitter, at AmRevPodcast. I try to keep my tweets on point and not too frequent, usually a few each week. I announce new episodes, sometimes note anniversaries of the revolution, and mention the occasional milestone. I also tweet recommendations of other history podcasts or resources that I think might be interesting. If you are on Twitter, please follow me. If you are not on Twitter, what are you waiting for? It's free and easy. Okay, on to today's topic. As I said in the main episode, covering the issue of slavery can be a tricky one, since I don't ever want to give the impression that I don't think slavery was horrible. But I also want to convey the common 18th century impression that slavery was perfectly fine. I also mentioned that I was reluctant to cover the slavery issue because there are a great many books that do a much better job and more in-depth than I can do in a single episode. Today's recommendation is one of those books. It's called Black Patriots and Loyalists Fighting for Emancipation in the War for Independence by Alan Gilbert. The book, which was first published in 2012, focuses on the black experience during the war. How many black people had to decide which side gave them a better option to improve their station in life. We find that many of them fought on both sides and often found that the side they joined did not really reward their support as they had hoped. The British ended up abandoning many blacks who had fought as loyalists. Patriots, at least in the South, decided that the institution of slavery was too much to give up. Only the northern states, where there were only a small percentage of the black population, ended the practice of slavery sometime after the war. The book looks at the struggle of blacks to find a good outcome for themselves, despite the odds. It also looks at how whites struggled with the contradiction of fighting for liberty while continuing to maintain slavery. Alan Gilbert is a college professor at the University of Denver, And as we find with many books produced by college professors, this book is very well-researched, but also rather long, nearly 400 pages. About a third of that page count is endnotes and index, though, so unless you plan to read all the notes, it is not as daunting a read as it first sounds. Professor Gilbert is not a history professor, but rather teaches international relations, and most of his other books deal with more current political matters. I found the book interesting and helpful with writing this episode. And if you want to learn more about the black experience during the revolution, you may want to give this book a try. As usual, I've placed a link to the book recommendation of the week on my website, www.amrevpodcast.com. Well, that's all for today. Please join me next week for another episode in the American Revolution podcast. 
The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts.